Hi, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Abnormal Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, and in the previous four episodes, we sort of laid the groundwork for what constitutes a psychopathology. Now I'm hoping to dedicate episodes to specific psychopathologies, starting today with anxiety disorders. And I start with anxiety disorders because they are the most prevalent psychopathologies. And the prevalence is growing. Um, these are such an important topic that I'm actually going to dedicate two episodes, this episode and next episode, to anxiety disorders. Uh, in this episode, I thought we would cover uh, anxiety disorders in general, and then also cover generalized anxiety disorder, and then SNM. Uh, don't get your hopes up about the last one. Uh, in the next episode, I thought we could explore social anxiety disorder, selective mutism, and separation anxiety disorder. Um, as I just mentioned, anxiety disorders are very common. Almost one in five people in the United States will be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. And uh, I did the math, that's about 40 million people. Um, when we talk about the prevalence model of psychopathology, uh, we talked about that a few episodes, one in five people is starting to border on uh, what we might consider a normal part of the human condition. So one of the things, uh, as we're discussing anxiety disorders, uh, we're going to have to draw a sort of diagnostic line in the sand, what's pathological and what's normal. Um, because anxiety disorders are so common, uh, they've been an integral part of the field of psychology since its inception. Um, if you go back and read old psychological documents from the late 1800s all the way up to the mid-1900s, uh, you probably won't see the word anxiety that often. Um, instead, it was called neurosis. Uh, Sigmund Freud would later uh, coin the term anxiety neurosis. Uh, we also had phobic neurosis. Uh, the neurosis word sort of screams the psychodynamic perspective when you see it. Uh, in fact, in the first two DSMs, uh, there were many psychodynamic psychologists who contributed to them, and they insisted on using the term neurosis. And this caused sort of a, a rift in the mental health world, and it wasn't until the publication of the DSM-3, which was in 1980, uh, that we really sort of shed that neurosis baggage and started replacing the word with anxiety. Uh, there are still vestiges of neurosis all throughout psychology. Um, I teach an undergraduate personality class, uh, and I also host the personality podcast, so that's a shameless plug. And uh, one of the personality factors of the Big Five model of personality, and that's the most popular and well-researched model of personality that's out there, um, is neuroticism. So it's still around, sort of. Um, anyways, as a history nerd, uh, I like to go back and look at sort of the historical conceptualizations of anxiety or neurosis. Um, Freud actually had some really interesting quotes about anxiety. Uh, one is uh, that we have long observed that every neurosis has the result and therefore probably the purpose of forcing the patient out of real life, of alienating him from actuality. I actually really like this quote because it shows that anxiety is in some way a sort of distortion of reality. Uh, it involves cognitive distortions. Um, if we are fearful of something that has, say, a high probability of happening, let's say you're flying in an airplane and you look out the window and all of a sudden an engine goes out and you start to panic, we're, we're not going to say that's diagnosable aerophobia, which is fear of flying, uh, which is not a diagnosis in the DSM but might be coded under specific phobia. Um, we're going to say that's a super adaptive, non-pathological fear of a real threat. Um, so note, we're not going to talk about illness anxiety disorder in this episode. Um, sort of strangely, illness anxiety disorder is not part of the anxiety disorder family in the DSM-5. Uh, it's part of the somatic symptom and related disorders family. 
Uh, but I think it does make sense to sort of think about the fear of COVID-19 here. Uh, if you experience high levels of anxiety about COVID-19, sort of where do we draw the line between saying that it's a healthy fear of a very real threat, sort of like, you know, looking out the window and seeing the airplane engine going out, or that it's becoming a pathological diagnosable condition? Uh, and I know this is something that clinicians are really struggling with right now. Um, Freud had a few other quotes about anxiety that I like. Another is that neurosis is the inability to tolerate ambiguity. Again, with the neurosis word, uh, but this one makes sense to me. Um, I seem to become more anxious during times of uncertainty. We're in a, a huge time of uncertainty right now, right? Uh, and the more uncertainty there is, or ambiguity in uh, Freud's term, um, the, the more anxiety starts to creep in. Uh, I'll share one more uh, Freud quote with you. Uh, he said, a certain degree of neurosis is of inestimable value as a drive, especially to a psychologist. So anxiety is definitely comfortable, um, and it can certainly be maladaptive. Uh, but we do know that med school students and law school students and very successful people tend to have higher levels of anxiety than the general population. Uh, so this quote kind of begs the question, is a certain degree of anxiety, while uncomfortable, uh, a sort of motivator? You know, evolutionarily, anxiety has not died out. Uh, the genes have been passed on for millennia, and they seem to be stronger than ever. Um, perhaps anxiety is conducive to survival. And I'll talk about this later in the episode when we discuss uh, threat detection and the amygdala. Uh, I'm going to keep going with some quotes about anxiety because I think they're really revealing about the nature of anxiety disorders. The psychodynamic psychologist Carl Jung um, had this really provocative quote. He said that uh, neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. And this one hits a few talking points. Uh, back to the COVID-19 and airplane engine examples. Uh, we might say that those are legitimate threats. So we wouldn't pathologize anxiety in those situations. Uh, another talking point is that he sort of separates anxiety from, quote, legitimate suffering. And I don't like this. People that experience an anxiety attack certainly say that it's very painful. It can be painful both psychologically and sometimes physically. Um, finally, we have the notion here uh, that anxiety is a first world problem. And this is super provocative, right? We do know that levels of anxiety are highest in developed countries. Uh, we also know that we seem to be more anxious right now than in any other time in human history, even before the COVID-19 outbreak. When I say right now, I mean, uh, you know, within the last uh, few decades. And this is despite having some of the longest life expectancies ever. Um, in this line of thinking, uh, maybe we create anxiety sort of in the absence of real threats. Uh, surprisingly, some war-torn and plague-torn countries have reported really, really surprisingly low levels of anxiety. Also, uh, some combat veterans will report that they were less anxious when they were deployed, uh, that, that, that when they were deployed, they just sort of lived day-to-day -day and in the present, and that it was kind of liberating in a way. Um, so I find the young quote really interesting. Uh, the French diarist Anais, I don't know how to pronounce it, Anais Nin, A-N-A-I-S, uh, send me an email on how to pronounce that, uh, had a great quote about anxiety. Again, the French tend to be highly neurotic. Uh, she said, anxiety is love's greatest killer. It makes others feel as you might when a drowning man holds on to you. You want to save him, but you know he will strangle you with his panic. And I like this one for several reasons. Um, first off, anxiety is a buzzkill, right? 
Um, if you're listing traits that you want in a romantic partner, uh, I doubt that anxiety is going to make the top five on your list. Uh, I also like the sort of visceral description of anxiety. Uh, when you're in the throes of anxiety, you might feel like you're being strangled. Um, I briefly hit on carbon dioxide and its provocation of anxious response a few episodes ago. And there's this intimate connection between breathing or lack of breathing and anxious response. All right, one more quote, and then I'll promise uh, I'll stop with the quotes. Uh, this one is more contemporary. Um, it's by the author Jody Picoult. And side note, you know writers tend to have higher levels of anxiety and depression than the general population. Anyways, uh, she said that anxiety is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you very far. This is sort of in contrast to Freud's quote about anxiety being a valuable drive. Here, anxiety isn't really productive. Uh, and the giving you something to do also sort of touches on Jung's uh, first world problem conceptualization of anxiety. Okay, so I mentioned anxiety is common. It's also comorbid. When something is comorbid, that means it commonly co-occurs with another condition. Comorbidity has been all over the news this week after the CDC announced only 6% of people who had, uh, who've died of COVID-19 in, in the United States um, did not have a pre-existing condition. So 94% of people that have had COVID in the United States that died had a pre-existing condition. Um, pre-existing conditions are sort of uh, part of comorbidity. Uh, anxiety is extremely comorbid with depression. Uh, the word neuroticism uh, sort of encompasses both anxiety and depression. And some psychologists and psychiatrists will argue that anxiety and depression are the exact same thing. And this is why they're both treatable with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Uh, they both commonly involve sleep disturbances, substance use, and agitation. Uh, regardless of whether you believe that, um, over half of people diagnosed with depression are also diagnosed with anxiety. Um, you'll also hear some people um, describe anxiety as speeding things up. Your heart rate speeds up, your breathing rate speeds up, your thoughts begin to race, whereas depression is slowing things down. Your thoughts slow and you feel like you're sort of moving in molasses. And that's probably an oversimplistic comparison. Anxiety disorders are also comorbid with substance use disorders, and this makes sense, right? People use substances to take the edge off. Conduct, psychotic, neurodevelopmental, and neurocognitive disorders. So anxiety is common and it is comorbid. It also has different courses. Anxiety disorders are gonna be more prevalent, about twice as common in females than males. Uh, they're more prevalent in people of European descent and more prevalent in developed countries. Uh, you're most likely to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in adulthood. Uh, 30 is the median age of onset. However, anxiety disorders will be fairly common in children. Uh, and we'll talk about a few of the more childhood ones uh, selective mutism and separation anxiety disorder uh, in the next episode. And despite um, occurring in children, um, rates of anxiety in adults uh, are going to be three times higher than those in children. This also doesn't mean that people all of a sudden sort of acquire an anxiety disorder out of the blue when they're in their 30s. Um, often they had anxious temperaments as children. They just finally reach the diagnostic threshold in adulthood. Uh, rarely does someone going, go from being laid back, sort of Jimmy Buffett in uh, their childhood years, uh, to having a full-blown, out-of-the-blue anxiety disorder in adulthood. Anxiety is also going to look different, to present differently in males and females. Males may be, may be more uh, likely to experience agitation and substance use, 
whereas females may internalize their symptoms more. So I've talked about anxiety disorders without actually giving you the specific diagnoses uh, in the DSM. So what exactly are the anxiety disorders in the DSM-5? Uh, they are separation anxiety disorder, selective mutism, <clears throat> specific phobia, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, agoraphobia, generalized anxiety disorder, and substance-slash-medication-induced anxiety disorder. Um, I've seen some statistics that say that specific phobia is the most common psychological diagnosis in the United States. Um, I just don't buy it. Uh, I can count on one hand how many diagnoses of specific phobia that have come across my desk, uh, whereas I've had tons of diagnoses of generalized anxiety disorder come across my desk. Um, I'd be interested to hear thoughts uh, from other people on this. Anyways, let's talk about generalized anxiety disorder. And if you're curious whether you might have this or not, do an internet search for GAD7, G-A-D-7. Uh, this is a quick and easy screener that many primary care physicians give uh, to see whether their patients are at risk for generalized anxiety disorder uh, before they hopefully uh, do a more comprehensive assessment. Um, for every disorder that we'll talk about, the DSM-5 will give uh, diagnostic criteria. For generalized anxiety disorder, you need to have three or more of the following six symptoms. And the symptoms are restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or mind going blank, irritability, muscle tension, and sleep disturbance. Now, disorders are also going to uh, have a specific uh, duration in which you'll need to have experienced the symptoms. For anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder, it's three of these symptoms for more days than not over a six-month period. And why a six-month period, you might ask? Uh, this is just what the experts who created the diagnostic criteria agreed on. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a judgment decision. Now, the judgment uh, decision is hopefully informed by research, but that's not to say that there's some sort of magic light bulb that comes on between five months and 30 days and the six-month where you all of a sudden have uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, but it does beg the question, if you're a clinician and you have a client that comes and sees you, and that client can only trace the symptoms back exactly five months and 29 days, uh, would it be insurance fraud to make the diagnosis? Sort of a provocative question. I also don't know whether months are calculated as like 30-day months or 31-day months or maybe like short months like February. Uh, send me an email if you know. So you need at least three of the six symptoms I listed for more days than not over a six-month period, plus these symptoms uh, have to cause significant distress socially, occupationally, or in another important area. This should remind you of the functional disability model of psychopathology we talked about in one of the first episodes. Other medical causes also uh, need to be ruled out, um, like hyperthyroidism. So a thorough diagnosis will involve a comprehensive blood screening before actually making the diagnosis. Now, while we're talking about distinguishing hyperthyroidism from anxiety, uh, we also need to talk about other conditions that anxiety can be confused with. Uh, when we're doing detective work to find out uh, what diagnosis is most appropriate, uh, we call this differential diagnosis. And there are a few uh, differential diagnoses that we need to rule out with uh, generalized anxiety disorder. I'll give you an example of one uh, with ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder which surprisingly isn't listed in the differential diagnosis section for generalized anxiety disorder in the DSM-5. 
but when people are nervous, they might appear hyperactive, right? They fidget, they play with their hair, they can't sit still, all sorts of uh, motor activities. And they also might be forgetful. Again, difficulty concentrating is a symptom of generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, so this can look a lot like ADHD. Um, you might also be asking how or why people get generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, we believe that neuroanatomically, uh, there are two brain structures that are involved in anxious response. Uh, the first is the amygdala, which is located sort of towards the middle of the brain, between your forebrain and hindbrain, and then fairly deep in your brain, towards the bottom of your brain. Amygdala means almond-shaped in Greek. Uh, they look like almonds. And oftentimes, neuroscientists will say the amygdala as if you only have one. Uh, but you actually have two of them, since you, you have bilateral symmetry in your brain, where your left and right brain uh, mirror one another structurally. Anyways, the amygdala is involved in a lot of different things, uh, but notably, it's involved in anxious response. Uh, people with anxiety tend to have overactive amygdalae. Uh, it's involved in the fight-or-flight response. So if you perceive danger, uh, your amygdala will start to activate. And it's important evolutionarily. Uh, for almost 100 years, scientists have tinkered with removing amygdalae from monkeys. Uh, in the 1930s, two scientists, uh, Heinrich Kluver and Paul Busey, surgically removed the amygdalae of Reese's monkeys. Uh, these monkeys became super chill and didn't display fear at all. And they also started to engage in inappropriate sexual behaviors. When some of the monkeys were released into the wild, these monkeys all died in pretty short order because they couldn't properly perceive threats. Uh, they jumped from trees that were too high, they got too close to predators, uh, and they encroached too boldly onto the turf of rival rhesus monkey clans. Uh, the legacy of this animal-unfriendly research lives on. Um, you might have heard of Kluver-Busey syndrome before. That's the name given to um, psychological symptoms due to lesioned amygdalae. Now, I promised earlier in the episode that I'd talk about S&M at the beginning of the episode, and sorry to disappoint you. Uh, we can maybe talk about that when we talk about paraphilias, uh, which include diagnoses of sexual masochism disorder and sexual sadism disorder. Uh, but today I'm talking about the case study of SM. Uh, these were the initials given to the person in question. So SM is a woman who has a rare condition. Um, she had a condition in childhood that essentially disintegrated her amygdalae. And without her amygdalae, she became fearless, like Kluber and Busey's monkeys. Um, researchers had snakes and spiders crawl all over, and uh, she was as cool as a cucumber. Um, in social situations, uh, she would also make inappropriate advances towards others, uh, since she didn't fear getting shot down. Uh, the only fear that researchers have been able to induce in her has involved uh, anxious response due to inhalation of carbon dioxide. Again, that intimate connection between breathing and anxious response. Uh, so the amygdala is involved in anxiety, uh, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle. Many people experience amygdala hyperactivation uh, when uh, presented with a threat. That, that hyperactivation of the amygdala is adaptive. So enter the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is right behind your forehead, and it's sort of the seat of what makes us human. Uh, it's the home to rational thought. So when presented with some sort of irrational fear, uh, the prefrontal cortex sort of pumps the brakes and inserts rational thought into the equation. Um, if you're scared of hearing leaves rustling behind you, you might start to panic. Uh, and your amygdala might say, saber-toothed tiger, right? 
Uh, but then your prefrontal cortex kicks in and reminds you that saber-toothed tigers are extinct. Um, so hyper hyper activation of the amygdala and hypo activation of the prefrontal cortex appear to be especially tied to anxious response. In addition to neuroanatomy, neurochemicals are also involved in anxiety, uh, specifically norepinephrine, which is also called noradrenaline, uh, glutamate, and GABA. GABA short for gamma aminobutyric acid, and they've all been implicated in anxiety. Um, we also don't know for sure what's really going on at the neurotransmitter level. Um, if you've ever call, uh, come across somebody taking a drug like gabapentin or neurotin, which is usually prescribed for seizures as an anticonvulsant or for pain management, um, but this person's taking it for anxiety, uh, it might be prescribed what we call off-label. This means uh, for non-FDA recommended usage uh, to treat anxiety. Uh, in this case, gabapentin affects GABA levels. Um, I'll discuss anxiolytics, which are medications used to treat anxiety, in the next episode. So neuroanatomy and neurochemistry seem to be involved in anxiety. We also know there's a fairly substantial genetic component. About one-third of anxiety disorders can be attributed to genetics. Anyways, I'm glad I'm splitting anxiety into two episodes because uh, I still have a lot left to talk about. Um, please send any mailbag questions you have to ctayl 41 at cb.edu. Until the next episode, take care and stay well.